when I open up my conversations with founders, which happens every day, is like, let's just start, which, what is the problem you're solving for who? You need to remind yourself that you're really shit at most things. Unless you're a big scale, adjacencies can be the death of an early business. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. With the e-commerce COVID boom, there's no doubt that we've seen more venture capital, private equity, angel investors and rich uncles coming out of the woodwork looking for a slice of that e-commerce pie, which no doubt is overwhelming and confusing for those trying to understand whether additional capital is the right path for their business. So, I was fascinated to hear of the Tractor Ventures approach. If you haven't heard of them, Tractor Ventures do revenue-based finance. That means that they can provide capital in return for payback with interest once you start generating the returns from the investment. It means that the founders don't have to give away big chunks of equity to unlock growth, which a lot of founders are looking for. They've already got e-commerce leaders such as Kate Morris from Adore Beauty, Ed McManus from Deliveroo, and Rob Award from Quadlock involved in the fund. So there's some really great e-commerce brains behind it. Joining me today is Tractor Ventures CEO, Matt Allen. In this ep, we cover exactly how the Tractor Venture investment model works and the types of businesses it is most suited to. We also dive into Matt's observations around how male and female-founded businesses differ, which is fascinating. We hear about two Shopify apps that Tractor Ventures are already backing, and we hear why Matt thinks moves like Afterpay's $39 billion acquisition will lead to non-linear growth for the Australian innovation sector. So, there's a lot to cover there, right? Thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet, Here's our conversation with Matt Allen from Tractor Ventures. Matt Allen, welcome to Add to Cart. Thanks for having me. No worries. I feel like I know you from following you on Twitter. You've got an awesome Twitter stream. You're not the first person to say that. Thank you. <laughs> it's not that I do it on purpose. It's it's weird. My team gives me shit now because I think in um I like I think in tweets. Yeah. Which is weird. Two hundred and eighty characters. I guess I've been doing it for a long time. Early adopter just seems to be the, the way I get stuff out there. What do you get out of it? It's really weird because a bunch of my mates who are investors like, do you do any work or do you just tweet <laughs> all day long? And I'm just like, well, I did raise my entire fund without going to see anybody. It, I, I guess what I get out of it is um, I do like to, you know, conversations with founders. I get a lot of deal flow out of it actually. I get a lot of people DMing me, asking me questions, you know, that quite often I try and talk about things that may not be spoken about in public very often, especially when it comes to capital raising and startups and stuff like that. So I, I feel like I, I feel like I try and, you know, my curiosity and, and hopefully adding some value to, to some people. Yeah, I feel like it's a bad reputation, but you can actually develop some really meaningful relationships that almost mimic real-world relationships on there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, yeah, as I said, a few of my other teams were like, oh, yeah, Matt, I, I, 
I haven't actually met him, but I do feel like I know him. And I guess, I guess that's, um, I don't sense very much. Like I'm, it's pretty much me. Like I'm a pretty positive guy. I don't generally say or do much that doesn't sort of turn up there. So it just is. Love it. No, it's good stuff. Now, We're going to get into Tractor Ventures, and I'm sure everyone's very curious around Tractor Ventures, but what caught my eye in doing research was the very first thing that you see on the website when you first load up the page, and there in big, bold words is, not all ambitious founders need venture capital. What do you mean by that? It's, um, you know, we built Tractor because, you know, I've met so many founders in my time, and my, my, my last job I had was on the startup and venture capital team at Amazon Web Services. And I met so many founders, mostly because I had $100,000 worth of cloud credits to give to them so I could talk to anybody I felt like. And it turns out that I met so many founders who were just building amazing businesses without VC. There's kind of two reasons that sometimes their business is not compatible with VC and sometimes they just chose not to do that. And as time trundles on and more and more founders have been exposed to a VC-backed company have worked in one, had one or whatever, you know, they've been actual having conscious choice. So, you know, traditionally you're building a tech startup. What do you do? You've got to put some money in this thing. How do you do that? You sold some shares to some people. They come with expectations around growth and therefore that's how you do it. Sell a share, use that dollar to grow the business so that you can sell some more shares to get some more dollars to grow the business, which is fine. I mean, I'm an LP in several funds. I'm an angel investor that requires VC for those things to be successful. However, it's not the only way. But until recently, it's been sell your shares to some investors or run entirely out of customer revenue. Now there's more ways to get capital in, which is which is not about selling shares to investors. It's about, you know, basically financing or funding that is non-dilutive, that doesn't take away the future upside of your business from you. It will cost you some money now. You either pay for it now or you pay for it later. And I think ambitious founders... The best ones realize that, yeah, I'm selling a share today and I am giving that value to someone else, but I'm going to drive a bunch of value for me. Uh, But it doesn't have to be that way. It may be that I don't need to include anyone else if I don't want to, so I can sort of retain it all for myself, which is not, you know, both extremes aren't necessarily the best place to be in. I actually think there's a blend. Yeah, gotcha. So talk us through, what does the typical deal look like for Tractor Ventures then? Yeah, so um, Tractive Ventures is all about founders that have revenue running through their business. It's really important. So we do revenue-based finance, which basically means take your monthly revenue, times it by three, and we can lend you that amount of money. And you pay it back via a 5% top-line revenue share. So as your company grows, the 5% is static, but the number obviously gets bigger as you grow. And if you have down months, the payment goes down with it. It goes up once it goes up with it. And that's the sort of the risk we take. And you continue paying that 5% until you pay the loan back plus some interest. Gotcha. And that, that interest, it'll be sort of, you know, 1.3 to two times the amount of money lended and it'll take two to three years. So it's, but the important part is that 5% top line rev share is, is really easy to model and it's really quite good on cash flow. It means you get 95% of every dollar that comes in to spend on running a company and that little sliver comes out to us. Yeah, nice. You know, and if it, if it turns out that your growth slows right down and, you know, that's the risk we take, it's just that 5%, if it turns out to be small, then that's that's our risk. 50 grand a month minimum. However, okay. it, scales, it scales all the way up. We've got a few loans out at the moment, you know, that are heading towards the millions. Mm-hmm. 
there's two general archetypes of founders. There's sort of bootstrap founders who just don't want to include anybody. And then there's founders who have got other investors, you know, with angels or so forth. And they want to raise some more money, but they don't want to do it yet. So they want to continue driving their business because as we know, valuations on tech companies are generally a multiple of ARR. So the more you can push it up, the higher the multiple goes up and the fewer shares you'd have to sell to bring in more capital. So, you know, we're here to help founders retain more of their company for longer. So they're the two situations and the two shapes of business of founders that we generally deal with. I love that concept about founders retaining their value in the, in the organisation that they've built. Is this a model that's new to Australia? Yeah, there's not too many. Um, there's a few other people out there doing it and there's a few more and more things like MCAs, Merchant Cash Adventures, which, which as your e-commerce folks have probably seen, you know, ClearBank, um, PayPal, Square, all these guys are, well, it's a very similar deal. You know, they say, oh, we don't charge you interest, we charge you a fee. The fee just happens to be a percentage, which happens and your pay will be back. You can reverse engineer it. It's It's always, you know, you can always reverse engineer it, but... It's the same sort of deal. It's like, cool, we understand your business. We understand it's growing. We're able to sort of pull forward some of your revenue so that you can invest in your business and make it grow faster. Think Shopify Plus is just for simple retailers? Well, let me tell you, JB Hi-Fi is no simple business. But when their old site crashed for two hours during Black Friday, doing nothing was simply not an option. Shopify Plus was selected as their e-commerce partner to help facilitate the fast-growing $5 billion retailer. However, with over 200 dispatch locations, a reliance on a web of APIs, and the ability to handle triple growth, it wasn't an out-of-the-box implementation. But the results spoke for themselves. JB Hi-Fi cruised through a record Black Friday and Cyber Monday in 2019 without a hitch, have reduced average page load time by 15% and were even able to redeploy three techies whose job it was just to watch the servers to make sure it didn't go down. JB Hi-Fi and Shopify Plus, not just smashing prices, but smashing e-commerce. To read more of JB Hi-Fi's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. Are you working with any e-commerce businesses at the moment? Uh, we have a couple of Shopify plugins, which is really cool. Oh. So it's sort of behind the scenes. Do we have any e-commerce businesses? Not yet, although there's a couple in the wings, um, a couple of beauty products and a couple of things. In reality, there's the, the capital for them will be used for a couple of things, which is um, you know, maybe pulling forward some stock so they can get ahead of their, um, their growth curves and not run out. Like, as you know, e-commerce being out of stock is a bad idea. People will just go somewhere else. Yeah. And the second one is using some of that capital to acquire customers. In e-commerce, as it is with any modern business, if you can really dial in your metrics and you know what your CAC is and you know what your LTV is and you know what your return, your um, how quickly it takes to you know, pay back an acquisition, that's the real time you want to, if you've got them dialed in, well, that's the real time you want to sort of, you can use finance because if I sell you a dollar for a dollar fifty, but you can make three bucks off it, then you're ahead of the game, right? Yeah. And that's really the the math that founders would want to be doing. And e-commerce is certainly in a high volume e-commerce one. Is it's as you said, it's cash flow business. How do you make sure you've got the right cash flow, got the right shape of capital? And and for us, because we actually do work with the teams after we after they lend some borrow some money off us, you know, you have the right people around you to help you support that growth. Yeah. And when you're looking at e-commerce businesses, sounds like you're assessing a couple at the moment. 
What are the key metrics that you're looking at over a period of years to assess whether it's a viable business? Interesting enough, because we look at top-line rev, like really it's top-line revenue is 5% of that, so margins are super important because obviously if we're going to take 5% off the top, if you're running 10% gross margin, like that's going to hurt. That's 50% of your free-flowing cash, which is like we wouldn't be able to help someone in that situation. But as you know, hopefully most e-commerce and D2C businesses, especially on a on a unit metric per, per sale, they've got high gross margins. It's really important. Mm. On the non-e-commerce stuff, it's all about customer concentration risk, which is not generally a problem with, with e-commerce. Usually there's lots and lots of customers. Uh, repeat purchasing. I mean, you know, your LTV is something that's really interesting. You know, acquiring a customer once is expensive, but as soon as they they buy twice, it's half as much. And if you can drive that machine, mm. the time to second purchase and that kind of stuff is is such an important metric to to be able to, you know, for every week you can bring that forward the impact it has on the, the whole machine is, is super impactful, right? And what's your take on lifetime value? Because there's so many different ways to calculate. And we've been through this with a couple of guests on the show before. We've got different answers, which is great. Mm. Do you try and keep it a really simple formula or do you have some complex way of working out lifetime value of customers? To be honest, we don't even really have a formula because there's you know there's so many different ways to do it. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting when you look, in, look into people's, you know, Stripe accounts and stuff where they obviously are using all kinds of signals to determine whether that customer is still a, a going concern. bit easier when you've got month-to-month subscriptions and churn. You know, you can really tell whether they're churned. And I think in e-commerce, because tightly coupled to the how long the product lasts for, right? You know, if you're in a, a beauty thing where you're buying stuff that's got a 12-month lifespan but you churn through it every three months because you're using it every day, then how do you determine where they're coming back? Um, if you've got omni-channel, how do you know if they're not buying from Priceline versus D2C? Like, there's just, just complex. <laughs> it is complex. And speaking of beauty, you've recently had some big e-commerce names um, you know, join up and contribute to, to the Tractor Fund. Um, Kate Morris from Adore Beauty, Ed McManus from Deliveroo. Yeah. What's it been like working with those guys? Yeah, really good. Um, uh, Kate's just came in uh, in this last round along with uh, Rob from Quadlock as well, who is a bit of an e-commerce genius. And uh, Ed from Deliveroo has been in, with us from the beginning. So I love these, I love these folks. Um, you know, Kate obviously um, bootstrapped her company for a long time and sort of skipped over the whole venture capital thing, went from bootstraps with a slight deviation to selling a chunk to Woolies to buying it back again to private equity. And I think that's really interesting from the bootstrapper's perspective, which is, you know, if you're going to skip venture, which, you know, because your business isn't compatible with it or you don't want to do it, what's at the other end? Is it just a business you love running that prints money? You know, how do you get some of that value out as a founder? And, you know, th- there is more and more private equity companies coming down stack, allowing founders to realize some of that value they've created in a business and some of them even just keep running the thing. So it's great having those people around. It's great having that experience for us to talk to mm. where some of our founders who are who are accelerating quickly are sort of starting to ask questions where we're like, ah, I don't know, but let me just call Kate, Rob, Ed, yeah. you know, some of these super experienced founders. Uh, who are there? And you know, there's plenty more back there as well. You know, Alex from Linktree is is you know one of the fastest growing companies uh, in Australia, if not the world. And uh, a bunch of experienced exited founders. There's a bunch of um, cashed out founders there who've got lots of experience and lots of time. So they uh, will quite often reach out and speak to our founders. And um, just from our newsletters, our internal investor updates, they're like, "Oh, I can help them," and off they go. So it's so good having people that are actually operators and founders around. 
that's a that's a nice phone book to have available to you. Um, is that something that is offered to companies that you invest or you loan to that expertise? Absolutely. So the tractor model, um, we call it revenue-based investing, which is a combination of two things. It's the finance as described, and it's actually our entire team. So there's actually 12 of us on the team now, which is crazy. And the majority of us are exited founders. So we've actually started, raised, and exited our business, uh, which means we're, we're, you know, we're really close to the operator you know, archetype. Some of us are still operators. So um, Kirsty over in New Zealand uh, still runs head of people for Aura, which is a Series B scale up over there. Lachlan Donald, who's our our CTO in residence, was the CTO of 99 Designs, and he still works with you know some massive scale ups at the moment. But he's got a couple of days a week for our portfolio. So yeah, the other part of what we do is we actually do earn the option to buy a small part. We're talking one to two percent of the founder's company in the future, but we actually earn it and we earn it over that first 12 months of that deal. So every month, one twelfth of whatever we negotiate vests to us. And if the founder doesn't think we're adding value, they can fire us. So it is, it is legit earned equity. Like if we don't sing for our supper, we won't get it. So like, and they do go hand in hand in the fact that we we normally do both at once. There's a loan and the equity at the same time. Uh, We have done one and now two that is, the advice only, surprisingly enough, because the scale-ups don't actually need a loan yet. They will in the future. But right now, they're just like, actually, we need your team to come in and help us sort of hit those levels so that we can take the money so that we can grow even faster. And who usually makes that call when you're in the early stages of talking to a founder around scaling up a business and you go, could be money, could be expertise. How do you normally land on what the model looks like? Most of the time, it's both. Like, to be clear, the vast majority of the things we do go hand in hand because... You know, the founders quite often, especially if you haven't been surrounded by other investors or venture or whatever, you you get to this point where you're like, hey, I've got this thing to millions in revenue, but I don't know what's going on. Um, you know, I can't see around corners because I don't have the experience. You know, I don't have advisors. I don't have investors. I don't have anyone else. It's me and my co-founders or, you know, and, and we actually have a, a surprisingly high portion of husband and wife teams in our portfolio. So they kind of just talk about it all the time, but they hit their kind of local maximum limit. They're like, we don't know what to do next. So our team has got experience doing that stuff. So we kind of help them unlock themselves and get to the next level. So it's most of the time it's like, unless they're literally got millions of dollars in the bank and they're in finance and they're not capital constrained, it'll be, it'll be both. Yeah. The two the two stages that we often see in e-commerce around where it goes to the next level is that point where they hit a million dollars in revenue and then all of a sudden it's, oh, shit, I've got to start actually investing in technology and people. This isn't a hobby anymore. Mm-hmm. And then when a founder hits about 20 million, 15 to 20 million, it seems to be that they go, oh, I started this because I love the product or I'm a really creative person or I'm great at marketing. All of a sudden now I'm running a company of 15, 20, 30 people. This is serious. Maybe I need you know, a proper management team to run this thing. Is that similar to what you see? Yeah. My favorite word is unlock. Like how do you, how do we help founders unlock themselves? And it's usually that they're, um, yeah, they're good at what they do. And it's not that they don't trust people. It's just that they've never been able to have someone and go, it's okay. You know, now is the time to hand that over. You're going to have to dip back into it every now and then because it's not going to work very well all the time. But if you don't do it now, like those charts that are being going up and to the right are going to go up and to the side, you know, sideways to the right, then down to the right, unless you get this correct. So we talk about, you know, the thing that we quite often do um, is provide capital 
and advice, but it's, it's like confidence capital and it's the confidence to go, huh, yeah, actually, I, I can do that now. So we, you know, part of that advice that we give, which we sort of, they click their fingers and get a, an advisory team of eight senior oper- operators like on day one and we have regular meetings with them and have them up in Slack. So there's, you know, there's conversations happening all the time. Is just, you know, those meetings, they come to the meeting, they're like, here's some things we want to talk about, here's the agenda, like, great. And they're just like, here's what we're going to do. What do you think? We're like, yeah, that, you know, yes, do that. No, go off they go. You know, and they do it, right? <laughs> um, it's just that the, when you live in your own little world and you don't have people surrounded with you who have some other data points for you to sort of benchmark against, you just don't know. Like you get decision paralysis a lot of the time. It can be a lonely world, right? Yeah, it is a lonely world. Not because things are bad, just because it's actually things are good, but you don't know what to do next. That makes sense. And when do you, we talked about e-commerce being a cash flow business. From an e-commerce perspective, when do you reckon, do you have any signals that e-commerce operators should look at to go, now's the time I need to pump in a bit more cash to keep this thing growing? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we talk about like the cost of capital all the time. Like, What will that cost you as a founder? It's either going to cost you now if you bring in some, some debt or it's going to cost you later if you sell some shares. So it's a constant balance between is this a short-term problem I'm solving that with enough capital I'll, it, it'll just keep going or is it I've actually hit a limit where I need to in, make an investment in processes, people or, or, or technology so that I can actually get to the next level? And every business is different, of course, yeah. but quite often I think that, you know, a lot of challenge founders sometimes go a little wide instead of going narrow, like they're not finished mining the thing they do before they start going too wide and they start to get distracted. So, Why do you think that is? Oh, look, if anything like me, there's always something shining around the corner, um, you know, and shiny things are, are shiny. Um, my boss at Amazon on day day one when I was in Seattle, he was like, shiny pennies, like they're everywhere. Like, ooh, look, <laughs> ooh, look, a penny, and you go around. You, you, you've got this handful of stuff, but it's not worth anything. So I think um, people not or feeling like they've sort of got to their limit on a certain thing, but they haven't, you know, there's always more customers mm-hmm. out there and, and it's always a challenge between the cost of acquiring those customers as you start to saturate stuff first adjacencies, unless you're a big scale adjacencies can be the death of an early business, yep. you know, going too wide choice is not necessarily a good thing for your customers. So, you know, I prefer to see people have a small number of products and absolutely blanket, the, the marketing rather than try and sell everything to everybody. And do you find that there's a big difference between creators and operators? And can you pick those people straight away? Because like on the shiny syndrome, I kind of see a lot of people who are great at creating things and they get it to a certain point and they go, yeah, it's created. I'll move on to the next thing. And I keep moving on without actually taking anything to its full potential. Do you see that as well? Yeah. I mean, not only do I see that i feel it as well yeah i actually did um uh ray dalio's the principles test this morning and i'm like i am that i do the ideas and initial execution but i i'm really not the best at sort of refinement and systematization yeah it's taken it took me 40 years to be comfortable you know knowing what i'm good at and then and not disrespecting what I'm not good at, actually have a total respect for it, but just acknowledge that I can't do it. And that if I do do it, it's going to end in tears for everybody. So now I just backfill, you know, my gaps with other people. And, you know, there's a real element there on, on ego, right? You need to, you, the first, to make that even, to even start that conversation, you need to remind yourself that you're really shit at most things. 
and that there's someone who's actually, and the, this, I still struggle with asking people to do things I don't like to do. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's a shit job. And they're like, what do you mean? I love that stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. You love that stuff. I hate that stuff. And and then you, and then we move on, right? So I don't know if that answered your, your question, but that's certainly how I sort of think about it. No, it definitely does. It definitely does. And I see it as myself. I think I'm a creator as well. I'm not great at systemizing. I have lots of ideas and I always talk at the moment around the danger of opening boxes. So it's like I've got a few boxes open. I haven't fully unpacked them. Don't go opening more boxes because I'll just hit you in the head. Like, yeah. Just let this one sit for a bit. Yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge. Attractor, you know, I, I think I think our mission is something along the lines of, you know, helping those founders retain more of their companies for longer. So, and then I think about us as a product company, right? Like what are the products we have that can slot in and do things at different levels for different parts of the company or the founder themselves? And so I live at... Hmm, I wonder if I can build a product around that particular part of that problem. You know, what does the risk look like? You know, how would I fund it? So on and so forth. When the rest of the team is like, hey, you know, we're trying to originate these RBF loans, that thing you invented 10 months ago, like help us with the process. I'm like, cool, I will. But I've got this other one over here that I'm sort of brewing over at the same time. So definitely identify with what you said. How do you like your cocktail gift boxes? Shaken? Maybe. Stirred? Perhaps broken? Definitely not. Cocktail gifting company, Cheers Sweetie, were finding that they were regularly coming up against broken items when mailing their gift boxes all over Australia. Not only was it costing them money, but it was a horrible customer experience. Working with our packaging supplier partners, Signet, Cheers Sweetie added an outer protective layer and internal cushioning, all while remaining environmentally friendly. They're now saving over $6,000 a year in broken items. Cheers to that. Visit signet.net.au forward slash blog to find out more. Is April, your wife, yep. involved in Tractor with you? Yeah, great. great. How does she complement your skill set? How do you guys work together? Well, she did her principles thing this morning as well. It's like we're, we're so different in so many places. Like it's definitely opposite to track. So um, now April doesn't, April's a co-founder but doesn't run the business. So we talk about um, of all the people in Tractor, we have the lanes that we stick in. And most of us are quite broad. So we're, we're kind of, we're a team of professional problem solvers with um, varying degrees of broadness of the lanes we stick in. So April's lane is very quite focused on the customer functions. So customer service, customer success, and things like that, knowledge management. So she's very much in the portfolio and every single founder needs her to help her scale up the sales ops or scale up customer service. But she rarely comes up into the sales funnel. She rarely comes up into any other parts of the business, the finance part of the business and what she does. So so it, her boundaries are quite well-defined where mine are quite broad. Um, Jody, our other co-founder, is very much uh, operational. So, you know, we spoke about my ideas and my origination and might be able to sort of create the model and create the thing and then she can definitely sort of backfill and help systematise it and processize everything so that it's accountable along the way. So the three of us actually cover a, a lot of ground when it comes to, you know, different parts of the business that are all, you know, as equally as important with each other, but we know where we stop and start. The the interesting thing about the difference between April and Jody is that April Jody and I can probably do most of the same jobs. So she does a lot of the sales and conversation with founders up front, which I could do all day long, but it's probably not the best part of my time when I'm I'm raising funds and she's running the the founder conversations and then we have the team running the portfolio. So it's kind of works quite well. Yeah. 
And did those lanes exist right from the word go or did they kind of naturally evolve over time? Uh, they've naturally evolved. April's was always as is, but um, so Kirsty and Lance over in New Zealand um have quite um, they have their domains that they uh they're very T shaped, but they have very deep domains in what they do, but they also go quite wide. So, you know, whenever we have our portfolio conversations, which we had one just you know before this call, the conversation is around it meanders all over the place, and we all have stuff to add, and it's it's quite valuable. Like I don't think it's nice having a um a team full of sort of senior operators that have been through the ringer a few times and it means you can cherry pick from experience and sort of present it in a way that's hopefully succinct and um, useful all at once. Yeah. So you have lanes, but it doesn't stop you from sharing opinions or experiences across other areas of the business. No, and I, and I encourage that. So, you know, my, my leadership style is, is very, but I, I don't have the monopoly on good ideas. You know, we do have strong opinions loosely held and we'll have robust discussions. And, you know, we were even talking this morning about how we refine our investment committee process around making decisions on and who we invest in, who we don't, and and how we sort of put some more robustness around that and some processes in there. But I want to hear everyone's opinion because I will release ideas early and they're not fully formed in the hope that everybody else is like, oh, yeah, that's good. But if you thought about that, where April is a long-term gestator she'll go like ta-da look what I've got I'm like holy shit that's amazing Um, (laughs) it's been brewing for six months and I didn't hear a word about it you know I'm I'm not that guy yeah gotcha one of the um, unique things that I read about your um, investments is that over half of your investments are in female founded businesses which is fantastic what what have you noticed about the difference between male and female founded businesses is there anything yeah I mean sweeping generalizations but um the women seem to just be more conscientious around just doing what they said they're going to do. They're usually more capital efficient. They're usually far more conservative in their projections and then actually exceed them more often than not. And uh, on, they're on the kind of the pros, on, on the cons, quite often their, their confidence levels are far below what they should be. Their competence is actually far greater most of the time. Their confidence is far lower. And, you know, if I can use my 43-year-old white guy bullshit is to help people understand that, hey, you're actually really good at this. Like, trust me, I've got a lot of data. I speak to founders all day long. I've got a portfolio for a lot of them. And you are above average. Just keep doing what you do. And like, oh, okay, cool, off we go. Mm. And they come back around. I did what I said I was going to do. Can you help me again? And off we go. And, you know, it's certainly not about, you know, they know more than I do the vast majority of the time. But it's just like I said earlier, it's just that confidence to be able to do that thing they wanted to do and have the confidence to do it without having to sort of ask permission a lot of the time, which mm. I certainly don't even have it to give. So I can't, I don't want to do that. But yeah. It seems to be that, that that seems to be an unlock that we can do. Yeah. There's that old analogy around the difference between male and females going for a job where males will just put their hand up and say that they can do anything. Females will kind of take some convincing, even if they've demonstrated that they've done before, obviously a sweeping generalization. Mm. Is that the same that you find with investment is that with female founded businesses, there's that piece that goes, no, actually you're, you are perfect to take this business to the next level. Mm. Yeah. I, again, it's, you know, it's generalization, but, but yes, I find that, um, you know, opening up that, that ambition levels, well, it's usually always there. Mm. It's just that the chart I'll show you is the chart they're actually going to do. Yeah. Where the chart that the dude shows, you're just like, like <laughs> there is no way you're going to hit that. And then they do the one, the other one. Yeah. And then if we put the Aussie or Kiwi lens on it, it's even worse because none of us like to 
talk ourselves up any any more than we particularly have to, which is a challenge we all have as founders, which is, you know, being ambitious enough and telling the narrative about what we want to do and how we're going to do it and convincing people the right level of balance of like, wow, that's impressive. I want to back you up, you know, which is a slight knife edge to like pull the other one, mate. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I used to talk to the Startmate um, founders all the time when we went to San Francisco before we weren't allowed to go to San Francisco anymore was, you know, you could put the same pitch deck in front of Aussies and SF investors and the Aussies are like, are you sure you're going to be able to do that? And the, the SF investors are like, I can't even talk to you. Like th- this doesn't even excite me at all. And yeah. so, you know, that, that sort of rolls down to and then gets amplified uh, when, when you sort of put the, the guys and the girls next to each other. And speaking of pitch decks, casting your mind back, what has been some tactics or data or visualizations that you that has really caught your eye in those initial conversations that you went? That's interesting. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of pitch decks. We do a lot of writing, like that's my Amazon sort of leftover, and we just raised our second round attractor purely on two and a half thousand words and one graph that I put in there. I think the and um, my friend um, Rowan Simpson from New Zealand's, I think, you know, said it best in one of his newsletters this week is, um, you know, all I want to know is like you had this, you had this hypothesis and now what have we learned? Yeah. Like tell me what you know now, like what you thought you knew and what you knew and then maybe what that might lead to if given the right set of circumstances and the right capital maybe and the right people and how do you do that? And that's kind of what everyone's betting on. It's like I've got this idea, mm. oh, holy moly, yeah, okay, that looks as good as I thought it was going to be if not better. Now this is what I'm going to do next. And, you know, TAMs and all that kind of stuff is weird. And I think there's a few good businesses that quite often create their own market, right? It's like, oh, here's a comparable addressable market. But in reality, when we get this thing up, it creates a whole bunch of use cases that we can't even, they're not even comparable. Mm. So, you know, I do like it when founders create a category and they can actually create an adjacency to something that exists and go, well, that's that, but this is this. And, you know, the, the savings or the, the the efficiencies the customers get out of this thing is going to create a whole new thing over here. And that's like, that's quite exciting when you unlock a bunch of sort of tailwinds that nobody else has got. Um, yeah. But that takes time and effort and a good, a good narrative. A I can imagine, I can imagine your bullshit radar has to be pretty high. Yeah. But you know, and again, speaking about Aussie founders, is that like I think quite often the reason people can't raise money is that they actually don't have it. It's not that the bullshit's not turned up high enough. It's that the confidence to go, yeah. I know, like this is the stuff I know, right? And I mean, most people only back a founder because they know stuff. Like very few founders go out with, we've got this hypothesis and no evidence whatsoever and no experience. You're like, oh, you know, like that's really, really tough to, to solve. Yeah, but assuming you do have some sort of experience in the domain, like your ability to assert what you believe to be true and the delta on what reality is and what you're going to be, and then the confidence to explain how you're going to do it, like that's I, quite often you miss that mark. In so many decks, you see just like I don't understand what the problem is and for which customer. Like you didn't start mm. in the right spot and that kind of stuff. Do you think it's sometimes because founders live in? live with these ideas and these businesses in their own head for so long that they go, that they miss the basic selling points because they've lived with it. Yeah, possibly. And I think it, it is a, a, a zooming out enough to go, oh, I'm going to talk to someone who may not have any background or knowledge mm. on, on, on the industry or the problem or whatever. And, and it, you know, when I open up my conversations with founders, which happens every day, is like, let's just start 
which what is the problem you solve and for who? Mm. And like how that question gets answered, and sometimes it still doesn't get answered even after 15 minutes. You're like, yeah, I understand what I think I understand what you just said, but tell me again, like who is you know who and why and how? You're right. I think you forget that the people you're talking to have got no idea most of them. And most investors have no idea. Like, mm. you know, in Australia, especially where everyone's quite broad, there's very few narrow people, which means you don't get to walk straight up to someone who has you know, un- first principles understanding of the problem you're solving very often. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a, something I recommend to, to for people looking for angel investors quite often is seek out the people who understand your problem because at least you don't have to explain to them there's a problem there. Like, oh, yeah, I got that. Now let's move on to the solution. And that's a, a shortcut that so many founders seem to just pitch randos who you, you can spend more time convincing them there's an even problem than talking about how you're going to solve it. Yeah, it makes sense. And I can imagine that the process is not like Shark Tank at all in that you're done and dusted within eight minutes and you're invested a whole bunch. Is it a long get-to-know-you process? Generally, for me, I'm basically backing people most of the time, which means you, you can't get to you can't get to a hell yes straight away. I mean, you can get early signs, and the early signs are great because you build on that. So it, it's funny, you know, we started this conversation off around Twitter, the amount of founders that I've invested in because we've had, you know, just could be months or years worth of Twitter conversation. Then they're like slid into the DMs and like, hey, I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, oh, cool, let's have a chat. And next minute we're on the phone or on, the, you know, a, a Zoom and ha- having a chat and, and I've either invested or I've introduced a bunch of people and we've all invested or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, like that has happened multiple times. Yeah, nice. So it's about getting ahead of the game. And actually being genuine and being part of the community before the point where you go, oh, shit, I need some investment. It's like, hmm. think ahead of the game. Cool. Um, and you mentioned before that you had partnerships or investments with some Shopify partners and apps. Hmm. Anyone in there you want to give a shout-out to? Yeah, well, I'll give them, give them both a shout-out. Um, the first one is um, Sinkio, Jimmy from Sinkio, which um, you know moves stock between multiple Shopify stores and does it all sort of on demand, um, which is a really big problem for people that run multiple stores and multiple locations and, um, and drop shipping. Yep. The other one, the guys from Disco Labs who run a plugin called Submarine, which do sort of complex subscriptions, um, complex payment rails. So they built the website for JB Hi-Fi and Marvel and Stamps.com. And like these are top of their game Shopify Plus developers who are moving into uh, an app rather than agency. So we, it, this is something we... we we seem to have an affinity with people that are like, hey, we've got this app that's got this growing revenue, but we've got this agency over here and it's hard to get off the day rate crack. So Tractor comes along and says, well, we can give you some capital so you can fire a few of those annoying customers, double down on your plugin and hopefully drive the recurring revenue rather than the, the consulting revenue and then everybody's yeah. happy. Yeah, turn into a product rather than relying on the service. Absolutely. I can't let you go without asking. Last week, and this is recorded, the week after Afterpay, get a nice little acquisition check for $39 billion. Yeah. What impact do you think that will have on the um, the Australian tech and investment community? I think so from the outside looking in, you know, so from the non-tech people, the people who still think the tech's bad or, you know, can't be valuable and, you know, the, the people that think, BHP and Telstra are where it's at. I think that there'll be some validation for their kids. You know, like, hey, mum, I want to go work at a tech company. You're like, oh, well, yeah, there seems to be something interesting happening over there. I'm still quite what, but $39 billion is hard to to not to not read that. I think it was 
was it 16 or 17 articles in the AFR in the three days you know, <laughs> afterward? This is like mind blown. Yeah. And then internally, there's a lot of people who with a, with a lot of capital. I mean, that company already shed a lot of capital in and of itself. You know, those guys are angel investing. I think I've got one or two on a cap table with me already. So like they do it quietly, but it, it's really interesting. And I think from a global level, you know, more and more large Australian things, I mean, Square and Afterpay, like I have holdings in both of them, and now I'm going to have one, um, and they're pretty big positions. So I'm. It's interesting that you know, from a global level, one of the most exciting fintechs has bought probably one of the most exciting fintechs in Australia, and and now globally. So I think there'll be some signalling around, and it's already happening. You know, the big guys are already here. There's lots of funds mm. flowing directly into scale-ups, but also indirectly via funds that have got other sovereign money coming to them now. So I think people will want to get international funds will want to get into the game earlier. Mm. And whether that's directly or via seed stage funds or whatever the case may be, so that when these things happen, they've already got a they've already gotten an in and they can keep piling in. Yeah. And I think too what what we see is people like yourself, people like Kate, people like Nick and Anthony, like the more that successful founders and operators get bought out, they have that likelihood and that desire to contribute back in to emerging yeah. founders and entrepreneurs as well. So it kind of doubles down on itself as we go. Yeah, I do think it's a nonlinear growth thing. You know, their dollars will get spread around. And, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, that the Atlassian guys have invested so much money in, in multiple of, you know, of our companies as well, which is, which is really exciting. And I also know that, you know, as much as these people can take lots of money off the table, like none of them sit on the beach forever. Like yeah. I know some founders that have disappeared and you never see them again. But it's not many of them, to be honest with you. And I think, you know, those people who are naturally curious and naturally as problem solvers and, and especially ones um, that have sort of gone through the ring of themselves, I think they almost feel obliged to mm. deploy some of that back in. And I know that, you know, when I've, I've had some success, I feel like I'm so lucky to have this success. Like I, I better make sure, I, how can I pay that forward? How can I invest in some other people? So hopefully, and again, if you get in early in that first check and there is that weird signalling thing where, if I invest, some other people are like, oh, well, if, if that's happening, then I'll get in. And, and I'm like, uh, that scares the hell out of me because my DD process is not as tight as some people may think. So <laughs> I'm like, all right, you can follow me any of you like, but just be clear, I like this founder and that's about the end of it. Um, you need yeah, the no, not financial yeah. advice sticker just on the back of your head. So um, yeah. Yeah. My, my AFS Alpha Tractor does not extend to me personally. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Matt, thank you so much for um, sharing more about yourself and what Tractor are doing. I think it's really interesting. And I'm sure there's lots of e-commerce entrepreneurs and founders listening to this who are, who are thinking whether it's now or whether it's years down the line, they can set themselves up and keep that equity in their business, which is a great option to have. What's the best way for people to get in touch with yourself or the team? So I'm on Twitter all the time, just at Matt Allen. We're at tractorventures.com, which has got all our FAQs and our application process takes about two minutes. That's probably the two best ways to find me. Beautiful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was such a wide-ranging chat, and I wasn't expecting it to go as wide as it did, but I'm so grateful for Matt for sharing both his experience in what he has seen in the past, but also being really open with his perceptions of what's going on in market. I feel like we can leave with a good understanding of what it takes to be a good founder in the current environment. 
I have three actionable tips that I took out from that episode. The first is it's so important to know your strengths. Is it strategy, operations, analysis, creativity? Matt isolated the Ray Dalio personality test as a way to see where you excel. And like Matt and his wife, April, it's important that not only you do it, but the team you work closely do it as well. The results from it might be able to help you distribute responsibilities between yourselves to better reflect your strengths, but also your energy. Seems like a great activity for me to do. Number two, Matt emphasizes the time to second purchase as a critically important metric. And it makes sense. If we think about it, a rapid second purchase effectively halves your customer acquisition costs. We put so much time and so much emphasis on that initial customer acquisition ROI number that we often overlook the time to second purchase. And that could be the shift in the effort to amplify returns. And the third and final one, I loved Matt's quote, adjacencies can be the death of an early business. And I thought it was gold. So critical to nail your flagship product and attract your biggest fans early before moving on to the next idea. I know it's something that me personally, I need to be continually conscious of and I see it in businesses all the time of not nailing that flagship product before moving on and expanding the range. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops, as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com.au forward slash high five. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart.